Monte Vista Chapel, along with Psychological Associates Press, is pleased to introduce Dr. James Henman, presenting Willing to Be a Fool for God. Dr. Henman has spent the past 30-plus years in his psychological practice successfully coaching thousands of clients to make desired changes in their lives while helping them build healthy esteem and connect with their core spirituality. He brings a deep love and commitment to God's plan for healthy change and an absolute faith in the healing power of grace to help make profound personal growth and the path of least resistance. He shares how his growing relationship with his big brother Jesus allows him to be a fool for God. Dr. Henman developed cognitive perceptual reconstruction as an integrated approach to therapeutic coaching in the early 1980s, addressing the gamut of addictions and emotional problems resulting from wounded self-esteem. He authored Changing Attitudes in Recovery, a handbook on esteem, in 1990, and helped form free care support groups as a safe place to practice the concepts and tools presented as the care handbook the same year. He wrote, Who's Really Driving Your Bus in 2003? We give you Dr. James Henman and his presentation, Willing to Be a Fool for God. One thing I've come to believe, and every year I believe it more, is what a great sense of humor God has. To pick a shrink, to be a spokesman, when it should be somehow that psychology and God aren't supposed to mix real well. To me, God's plan for sanctification, recovery, which is messy sanctification, Really, if you think about it, that is what recovery is, is messy sanctification. And God's plan, if it's anything, is messy. And we tend to like tidy. We'd like to think that the t at the time we accept Christ and we become born again, that we're suddenly transformed immediately as the Holy Spirit enters us. And from that point forward, we're totally changed and we're just like Jesus. If you'd seen me this afternoon, you would have said, where's Jesus? There's something that I really needed, I couldn't find, and I lost it. <clears throat> I think it was 10-year-old Jimmy, just lost it. And there's poor Sonia, said, Jimmy, it'll be okay. <laughs> Can I help? And I said, don't help me right now, it's not safe. For the talk that I gave earlier today at Samaritan Village on depression, I had less than a page of notes for that presentation. This is seven pages, because when I'm giving a talk with him, it, it, it means something different to me than if it's just on depression or some other clinical problem. God has always given me a gift, a nugget. A nugget is a, is a particular way of looking at something that when you turn
turn it one degree, it suddenly makes things profoundly different. Profoundly different. The birth of the book that I'm writing currently, which is Willing to Be a Fool for God, and therefore the name of this talk, Willing to Be a Fool for God. Oh, it's on there. Okay. Um, had its, its, its birth, its nugget, at a tragic death here in Turlock of Zeb Walters, who was a college student at Stanislaus State and was found dead at his computer. Zeb was the older brother of Bear Walters, who was my older son Jesse's best friend. Bear and Jesse were in diapers together. Uh, Zeb was in and out of our house the whole time he was growing up. And when Zeb died, it was like <clears throat> Jesse or Nathan, my two sons, like one of them had died. It was just, it was just, I can't put into words unless you've had that kind of loss, what that was like. We went to comfort them. We went to comfort George and Martha, and the family. And it became very clear words were not possible. There's nothing you could say. I, I, I talked for a living, and there was nothing I could say. I felt absolutely powerless. We cried with them. We laughed with them. We cried with them and laughed with them over and over the, for several days. And after the viewing, we came home, and, and Sonia were laying in bed. And all of a sudden, I began to sob from the bottom of my soul. I was sobbing. And it took about 20 minutes to get out the words to Sonia that we're not in control. That could have been Jesse. It could have been Nathan. It could have been Sonia. I wouldn't mind if it was me. That's, that's the easy part. The one that goes has it easy. I know where I'm going. Not because I deserve it, not because I'm a good representation of what a good Christian should be, but because of his nature. And I was thinking about how foolish it is by the world's view to get so close to people that when they die or when they leave you that it hurts so bad that you're sobbing from the core of your soul. And that's where the name came from. I'm willing to be a fool for God. It was such a blessing in going through that grief with George and Martha and the family because none of us fell for the trap that the world seems to be so good at proposing. Why should something like this happen? To a good kid like Zeb? Why should a family like George and Martha Walters have that kind of loss? They're good people. They're loving people. They're good in their community, good in their church. Why would God let this happen? What kind of God would make this happen? We didn't fall for those traps. Instead, we cried and we laughed. We remembered. And as a result, we were able to allow the spirit between us to comfort each other. We couldn't, we couldn't find the words. And the spirit spoke through us, for us, with us. And we had an intimacy that was 
every bit as much as the birth of my first son, Jesse, where I was sitting at uh, Lyons afterwards, and the waitress came up and said, what would you like to eat? And I was sitting with my sister and brother, and I started saying, I don't know. <laughs> Here I am at Lyons just sobbing like a, like a weenie, you know, because <laughs> I had a son. And I felt just the same power when I had another son. And to imagine God, who loves perfectly compared to me, that just loves as best he can, to think he sent his son. He sent his son. It's like me sending Jesse, knowing he's going to be spit on. He's going to be scorned by the very people he sent to save. I'm willing to be a fool for God. I'm proud to be a fool for God. Not because I think I'm a good representation of what a Christian should be, but because I believe in His plan, not only of salvation, which I do believe in also, but I believe in His plan for sanctification, for healthy change. It is a perfect plan for imperfect people to do imperfectly, and he does the rest. Did most of you see the passion? Most people were impacted by the flogging and the actual crucifixion. That didn't bother me. What I mean by that is I had already pictured that a long time ago, of him kind of pulling himself up to try to get a little air feeling the pain of it, falling back, suffocating. I knew that. That was awful enough, okay? That was awful enough. What got me, what made me happy about the movie was when Jesus was being playful with his mom, spitting water at her, you know, with it, you know, like this. And when he was carrying the cross and it flashed to him as a little boy falling down, that makes him real. Jesus is real. When I think of Jesus, when I talk to Jesus, when I'm dealing with my big brother Jesus, he has on a work shirt and jeans, work boots, he's got crumbs in his beard, coffee breath, <laughs> armpit stains, kind of windblown, sunburned. He's real. He's more real to me than any of you are real to me. That's his plan. Christ is King of King and Lord of Lords, and that is true. I believe that to be true. No one will ever convince me that it's not true. And it's wonderful because that means I'm saved. That doesn't help me for sanctification. I'm sorry. Maybe it's just I'm just not smart enough or good enough. But I can't relate to God in that powerful abstraction. I needed something tangible. It's called modeling in psychology. I guess God must have taken a psychology course because his plan was perfect modeling. Someone that was so unthreatening, someone that was so loving, so accepting that the sinners loved hanging out with him. 
kicking it, as Jesse and Nathan would say. They'd kick it with Jesus. Can you imagine that with a three-piece suit, six-syllable, that you, send, you tend to get on TV? No, no. He came as a very real, very down-to-earth, very loving person. And we've done everything in our power to make him into a eunuch by thinking that Jesus was nice. Jesus was not nice. Jesus was loving. Loving and nice are not the same. Loving is what I do with my clients when they want to run out the door. Being honest with them with zero judging, absolute love and respect. I respect anyone that sits in that chair opposite me. I would not want to sit in that chair if I truly didn't want to change or unless I was truly a masochist. Because when someone tries to tell me change isn't possible, when someone says, gee whiz, my mom addressed me funny, I said, so did mine, so what? What's the point? The point is, let's learn to choose differently today. In 1 Corinthians 1.25, Paul states clearly that God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. And he goes on to say, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And that's why I'm here. I represent that. I represent the weakness. And that's not humility. That's accuracy. That's accuracy. I have chosen from the time I met him and accepted him as my Lord that I would let him transform me and I would try to stay out of the way and I would try as much as possible to want to be like him. When I started 25, 26 years ago on this adventure, I wanted to want to want to want to change things. It sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? Wouldn't you go to a talk on somebody that's that put together? Over those 25 years, I've moved that. Some of those have changed. Some of them fairly recently. And it's so exciting. It is so cool. Some of them are still wanting to change. Some of them are still wanting to want to change. But I have refused to white knuckle grab that steering wheel because if you grab the wheel, one of two things happens. You can have the illusion of being successful and become an arrogant Pharisee. The only group that Jesus, I started to say despised, that he really was really upset with. For the longest time, because I, I, I'm not judgmental, for me to judge a soccer game of whether the ball's in or out is more stressful than dealing with somebody that's suicidal. I can deal with the suicidal thing because that's a process. You know what I mean? It's a process. But the ball's in or out, well, I'm not sure. I don't know. I wasn't looking. I'm not a detail guy. 
And I loved it that Jesus said, you brood of vipers, you unwashed sepulchers. So I thought, oh, it's okay to, to hate him. And then, since I've been working on this new book, he uh, pointed out a little detail, which just deflated my balloon. The most loving thing Jesus could say to those Pharisees, knowing what they were doing, knowing what faced them, was to try to give them a wake-up call. I would rather have a wake-up call and turn around than face God after putting that hard, cruel, unfair burden on his little boys and girls. I don't know why God loves them. He hates what they do, but he loves them. God is deep and simple. Don't try to make him superficial and complex. We do it over and over and over again. We take something that is more deep than you could possibly imagine and more simple than you could possibly imagine and we turn it into a set of rules. Modeling is one of the most effective ways of learning and yet trying to force someone to follow rules is the least effective way to produce change. God had it right, we have it wrong. When religion begins to turn people into rule followers rather than into someone who is so awed with grateful humility because he loves us as we are. Not because we deserve it, not because we're lovable, but because of his nature and who he is and how he sees us through his eyes. At the beginning of the Caring Grace groups, we start with a prayer. I go through this prayer all day long when I'm working, when I'm not working, all day long. Dear Lord Jesus, let me see myself and others through your eyes and respond to what I see through your nature. Take a deep breath and feel what it's like to try that prayer on. It's a participation activity, not an intellectual exercise. Through your eyes, Lord. Responding with your nature, Lord. That's his plan. It's our birthright. It's our birthright to borrow our big brother's eyes anytime we want to. He wants us to. He knows that when we do, we suddenly have a very different perspective. One that gives us choices that we don't see otherwise. And we can tap into his nature. We can borrow that whenever we want to. He will give us that response. In this increasingly digital age, this age that we're in is, is highly digital, dots and zeros. Everything is, is getting more and more you know, digital. You can get more precise. You get digital cameras, you know, uh, computers. Everything has become digitalized to where now truth is becoming very, very fuzzy. 
I can, I can produce, I can't because I'm a, a techno nerd, but if I was more technically sound, I could, I could make anything look like it was happening by, by patching together and digitalizing the, the format, I could make any appearances are very deceiving. God is not digital. God is analog, meaning one continuous, one unbroken being. We tend to live our lives as if we're submarines in this day and age. Different compartments. What day is it? Oh, it's Sunday? Hello, I'm Jim the Christian. <laughs> Except if I'm in the parking lot. And then be careful because I may forget that it's Sunday and I may run over you. I may beat you up if you try to get my parking spot. If it's Friday, let's party! If it's Tuesday, my wife's out of town, why not have an affair? It's a different compartment. So I will be congruent in each compartment, but the compartments are not congruent with each other. So we're living a life of greater and greater fracturedness as a result. Addictions are the result of those submarine compartments. He wants us to open those airtight compartments and let him into all of them. It may seem sacrilegious to you. It may seem, I don't know what. Even when I'm rebelling, even when I'm doing something I know he doesn't want me to do because he loves me perfectly, I keep him with me. Now it does take some of the fun out of it, which is good, because I don't want to sin, but I do. But if I keep him with me, even when I'm sinning, then I don't fall for the lie that says, oh, I see. You're actively rebelling. You're out of God's will. Therefore, he is going to turn his back on you. And when you get your act together, and you clean up your act, then you can crawl to him and maybe he'll forgive you. That is most non-Christians. It's so unchristian. That's, that's really more right word. That statement was an unchristian statement. That's not God's plan at all. And non-Christians believe that that is his plan. And so they say, gosh, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. And besides, I don't want to be a hypocrite like the Christians I've known. I came to a Christian. I come to a Christian. I became a Christian when I went to a church 
because my secretary at the time invited me. Sonia and I went. And the guy up there was having fun. I thought Christians were like American Gothic. You know, that if you had fun, boom, you know, God would get you. Honestly, that's what I thought. You know, sadly, that's still true sometimes. To me, there is no more pleasurable, more amazingly fun adventure than when him and I are on a journey. Like right now, when he's given this talk that I spent countless hours preparing, and he may let me give a little bit of it, he may not let me give any of it, I don't know. It's up to him. But I am so alive when I am letting him speak through me. I am so alive when I borrow his eyes and I see things with just a little twist of perspective. And suddenly I understand. I understood that there was meaning behind Zebi's death. I knew that it was something that needed to be shared. And when I have something that happens, it's really like this morning, I was talking, to I gave a talk on depression this morning. And I talked about how I went to Costco to get my eyes checked and my hearing checked. Costco because my dad was so cheap that he, may, he saved money on Social Security. He used to say, if a dollar gets in this hand, it will never see the light of day. And he's serious. He died at 87 several years ago. And the exam was free. <laughs> Worth every penny. So I backed him back to back because my schedule's pretty tight. I went to one, got my hearing tested, and the guy said, well, yeah, you have significant deafness. You need hearing aids. I said, what? <laughs> I don't want to hear this. <laughs> he said, well, it's kind of uneven. And he decided that the sound range, because hearing is, has, has different ranges happen to be the exact range of my wife's voice. <laughs> Tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. You know? She's the one that kept saying, Jim, are you deaf? Now I can say, yeah. <laughs> and then I went next door to the eye uh, doctor to get my exam, and he said, well, you know, your eyesight's very good. But you do have these little things in your, in your inner eye that are precursor to macular degeneration. Now, you can't tell whether you'll actually get it or not, but there's a pretty good probability that you will get this disease. And I found out later, my mom has it. Hey, if she can have it, why not? I can have it too. She has the dry type, right? Yeah. But it was just kind of overwhelming. So what happened was, I walked out of Costco kind of in shock. I love writing. I have a lot of books in me. I know. But if I can't see, how can I write? I talk for a living. I know therapy is supposed to be listening for a living. <laughs> I tend to talk for a living. Because the Spirit gives me truth that I share. So I'm listening while I'm talking. Sometimes it's the Spirit. Sometimes it's me. If it's spirit, it tends to have amazing results. If it's me, eh, not so good. 
Yeah, what are you going to do? Rick? It's important to realize none of us receive perfectly. And so if we think, well, we're going to follow God's leading, it depends on we're talking about what or how. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But he gave me for the bus book the abundance paradox. And I want you to just really think about this for a moment. This is a kind of paradox that God loves. You cannot truly embrace God's plan without embracing paradox. To live each day as if it could be your last. And, and, the three-letter word and, and live your life as if you're going to be a long long time on earth. When you put those two seemingly contradictory things together, something happens to your perspective. Something wonderful happens. If I have a fight with Sonia, since we're going to be together for a long, long time, it's been 32 years, seems like just a snap, another 32, I want to deal with it as quick as possible. The sooner we deal with it, the sooner we get it behind us, the more we can enjoy the benefits. Long-term investment. How many relationships have the opposite? They avoid conflict until the battery terminal gets so corroded that the spark can't come. Or like a wood stove that becomes cold in the morning after it's been banked down. Is there a spark? Is there not a spark? I don't know. It doesn't feel like I have a spark. Often I hear clients come and say, I don't, I don't know if I love my partner or not. I don't think I do. Or they say, I'm sure I don't because I don't feel it. And I always give the analogy of the, the wood stove. And I say, have you had a wood stove? Most people have been around one. Is there a spark? Is there not a spark? Well, I don't know. You've got to dig in there. You can touch the white ash. It's cold to the touch. But you still do not know if there's a spark until you dig in there and see if in the middle of those ashes a little spark exists. And if there is, what the world encourages us to do is put a big oak log on it. What happens when you put a big oak log on a tiny little spark? It puts it out. If you can't have instant results, forget it. That's the world's mentality. What do you do if it's a little tiny spark? You take some little pieces of paper, some dried pine needles maybe. <laughs> I bet the sound man loves that one. And you put air to it. And then you put some more air to it. Then you put little, little twigs and some more air and some more twigs and some more and then bigger twigs and bigger twigs. Yeah, finally you can put the oak log on. People want instant results. That's not possible. And we try to go for them. All we prove is that it is dead. And that's why the divorce rate within the body of Christ is as high as it is outside of the body of Christ. And that's real sad. That's real sad. I want to 
read you a poem by Thomas Merton, which, by the way, to tell you how much I love you guys, as a dyslexic reading, it's like walking on broken glass barefooted. I hate to read out loud. My wife reads beautifully out loud. She can read the Song of the South in dialect. Jesse and Nathan and I would be on the bed just laughing, rolling, falling off the bed laughing, and she'd be sight reading. I've read this poem many times. You won't necessarily know it as you hear it. But this poem, Prayer of Trust and Confidence, captures my spirituality. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not know the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope that I never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me and will never, never leave me to face my perils alone. As a kid growing up, I would have sold my soul easily to have kids play with me, to accept me. I stole money from my dad. He had an office in his home. I stole money to go to school and buy ice creams for the kids so they'd play with me. It is truly a miracle that someone who so hungered to be accepted that he would steal, he would lie, he'd be a chameleon, I'll be 10 foot tall, 2 foot tall, 500 pounds, 100 pounds, whatever you want, I'll be that. To go from that person to a person that has the ability to irritate a lot of conservative fundamentalists for being way too real and way too transparent and way too messy and irritating psychology for putting God at the very center of what I think is the most powerful change process I've ever come across. And I don't really care. I hope you like me. I want you to like me. I really do. I like my clients to like me. But for 32 years, I got into every session prepared to be fired. Every session prepared to be fired. Because if I wasn't prepared to be fired, I might hold back and not give them all that God wants me to give them. If I have to get in their face, I'll get in their face. I can be a junkyard dog. You wouldn't believe what comes out of my mouth sometimes. Are you a Christian? Yeah, he doesn't want credit for the words, just the message. <laughs> He's working on me, okay? He's working on me. The heart of God's plan, I believe, and of course, wouldn't you know it, I lost my place on this, so I, I think, it's, I'll paraphrase it, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The old has passed away, you're now a new creation. 
God no longer holds your sin against you. He calls you to a ministry of reconciliation, to be his ambassador of reconciliation. Take a deep breath and really feel those words. Take several slow, deep breaths and really feel those words. To be God's ambassador of reconciliation. Ironically, those very words have been used to say, the past is the past, close the door on the past, you're a new creation. Now, if that were what God meant, then it also means that Paul was doing it wrong in Romans. When he says, I do the things I don't want to do, I don't do the things I do want to do, oh, wretched man am I, but sin dwelling in me, not me, is doing it now. So if Paul couldn't get it right, we're all toast. Or it means something different. And I believe it means something different. Because I don't believe we're toast. I do not believe we're toast. What it means is our identity has died. The old nature identity has died. Die to the old self. Die to the old identity. Be his ambassador. What does that mean? It means take on his nature in relating to others. Take on his nature in relating to yourself. Yes, to yourself. How do you talk to yourself? How do you react to yourself? Are you loving? Are you nurturing? Are you are you gentle and honest? Or are you... <laughs> as you're constantly taking your inventory. Hating yourself for every fault you find. The secret of God's plan of grace, highly overlooked, is the ability to feel good about noticing that you're going the wrong direction. North to Turlock from Modesto. You're going the wrong direction. We're all going the wrong direction in some area. The fact is, he knows it. He wants us to let him through us encourage us to gently turn around. As I get up to Sacramento, God's saying, Jim, you know, he may be going the wrong direction. You know, why don't you stop and ask for some directions? Oh, I'm in a hurry. <laughs> I got to get to Turlock. And I get up to Ukiah, and I get up to uh, Oregon. I go faster and faster and faster because I got to get there. How often is that true? You hate yourself for the things you see that you don't like seeing. You shame yourself for the things that you don't like seeing, the things that do not line up with him and his nature. In this bus book, he has poured out more nuggets than I can imagine. One of those nuggets in chapter 8 is judging and defending prevent change. Judging and defending prevent change. There's a wonderful dialogue with Les that shows the, the cost 
of being judgmental and hating yourself for the negative things you see. That's not God's plan. His plan is, well, Jimbo, you're going the wrong direction. What shall we do? Would you like some help? You want me to help you clean your windshield so you can uh, see a little bit better? You know? You want me to just kind of give you a big hug because I know you're feeling kind of lonely and bad right now? You've just been a jerk to Sonia and you're feeling kind of guilty? Let me love you so you can turn around and love her. Rick? To be a fool is to put yourself out when you don't know whether for sure it's God or is it lunch. He gave me three things to discern. I would encourage you to take these in, into your heart, because they really reflect, again, God's plan. One, does the message contradict scripture? If the message I'm getting seems like a great message, but it contradicts scripture, it's not from him. God cannot, will not contradict himself. So if it contradicts scripture, I don't care how practical it seems, that's not from him. Two, does it reflect his nature? God has a nature. If you read his word without reading it filtered by his nature, you get distortion. That's why people do ugly things in the name of God. Because without his nature to give you a way of understanding his words, the tone, the inflection, the, the underlying presuppositions that make sense for those words, you can turn it into anything. I can kill you because you don't believe in him. No, that's not his nature. You know why I'm so non-judgmental? I'll share it. I don't know, this just came to me. But, yeah. When I first became a Christian, somehow one of the first passages I came across was the fact that uh, as you judge, you'll be judged. So as you judge, you will be judged. Man, I knew I would be burnt toast. And I made a very pragmatic decision. Cool. I'm not going to judge anybody. <laughs> I'm going to accept them right where they're starting. I'll be honest with them, but I'm not going to judge them. Because if he's going to judge me, and I'm being real judgmental, and he's going to judge me that way, there's no hope for me. I, I welcome you to be pragmatic in your Christianity. God wants you to be pragmatic. He wants you not to judge others so that he can judge you in a similar kind of loving way. It's not idealistic. It's pure practicality. And the third one, does the message reflect a lantern perspective? It's amazing to me, and I really understand the words, let those that have eyes see, let those that have ears hear. What do you think when you think of lantern? Everyone's seen a Coleman lantern, or some brand. It shines light 360 degrees, right? Most of us, Use a flashlight. Shines in one direction. See? Oh, I see a flaw on this guy here. Or I shine it in my own face. 
take my own inventory. But I can't see both at the same time. God never uses a flashlight. I don't use the word never very often. This is one of those times of never. God and His Spirit never uses a flashlight. If you're using a flashlight in His name, you are not His ambassador. You are not His ambassador if you're not using a lantern. Because a lantern shines the light in all directions, for all concerned, without any double standards. God has no double standards. What's good for me is good for you. What's good for you is good for me. Even Stephen. You know what I mean? There's no double standards. Flashlights create judgmentalness. It's a harsh light. It's a critical light. It's a shaming light. This concludes disc number one. Please insert disc number two.